Hi, and welcome to Real Clear Fetish Talks Real Clear Play. An Instagram Live slash podcast slash whatever it really is, but we talk about kink and sober fun. So I'll bring my guest on, and we're still in the UK today. Hello, Les. Hi, uh, you're right. I'm good, and you? I'm good, thanks. Welcome, welcome to the live. How are you doing this well, evening? I'm good. I'm just nervous. You're nervous. Don't be nervous. It's just a casual chat. Just think that no one's watching us, and we're just chatting together. That that's yeah. that's kind of the feeling you need from this. But we'll jump into the four standard questions I start with at the start, and then we'll just see where we go from there. So, cool. first question: What do you call? I call you pronouns, names, and title. So I go by he, him, and name and title, if any. Oh, just less. Everyone knows me as less. Less. Fantastic. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm in recovery. Um, I've been in recovery now for nearly 12 years. Um, so my substance misuse started quite young, uh, but with recreational drugs. Um, then kind of stopped doing all of that. Uh, stopped doing like the party scene and the club scene. Um, and then alcohol took over for me. Um, ended up being alcohol dependent um, and then obviously that took a while to get sorted um, did home detoxes I was a frequent flyer in and out of hospitals as well for a long time um, and then eventually something clicked um, I ended up getting with a different agency it was the NHS that I was with first of all um, but then I did it through an organisation called Leicester Community Projects Trust. Um, they referred me for an inpatient detox and supported me afterwards. Um, and that was the difference because they supported me all the way through that. Um, and then it's nearly 12 years now. Well, it'll be 12 years in March. Fantastic. That's amazing. I wouldn't have done it without the support of the people along the way though but i'll talk a bit more about that later yeah um of course you kind of answered the next question but i will ask it because i ask it to all my guests completely sober clear-headed or social drinker oh completely completely sober yeah i, I, I don't even miss drinking anymore so you, 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 you say you're completely sober so um you mentioned you you're you're alcohol dependent would you, um, do you stay away from non-alcoholic drinks as well? I do now. For a long time, I, 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 I'd have like, you know, like you, or you use zero beers and stuff like that. I'd have them. Yeah. Over the last few years though, I've kind of, I've even gone off drinking them. Um, just, there's no point, I don't, I don't enjoy them anyway, and I was I was never a massive drinker when I was younger. Like the party scene and the rave in the club scene was my thing, um, mm. and then I just ended up drinking. But a partner that I was with that I was with for fourteen years, he was a drinker, 
and that's how I kind of got into the drinking culture. I'm not blaming him for it. It like it was all on me, but it, I kind of got caught up in all of that, like drinking after work, going uh, to the pubs all the time and stuff. And obviously, like one thing led to another, and then it ended well, up becoming it, It's similar to what you mentioned there, where. Um, you got into the drinking because the partner was drinking, but it's not their fault. And I've I've had to mend some relationships with previous partners. You know, you know them both. Um, where when my thing blew up, they felt yeah. responsible because they'd introduced me to recreational drugs. And I was just like, yeah, but you didn't put a needle in my arm. Yeah. It's 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 that simple. It's yes. If it hadn't been you, it'd have been someone else that's done it. Yeah, and that's it. I think, it, especially because I work within the services, I see a lot of people that go through like they'll stop using one substance, but then because they've not dealt with things properly, they'll move on to using another substance. Um, and I, I see that all the time with people in treatment that are. They might have been like a heroin user, and they'll 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 get a hold of that, and they'll they'll be on a methadone scripts, and they'll reduce and come off that. But then along the line, alcohol will take over, or they'll start using steroids, and and they kind of trade one thing for another, and that's kind of what I did. Like I stopped doing the whole rave and club scene and the party scene, and then because I hadn't dealt with like my emotions and and dealing with life and there's a lot of stuff that was going on a lot. Even though like, I was in a relationship with another guy, I was still quite, because of how people were, there's that internalised homophobia. And like now I'm like, really confident and like, I'm a different person. But it, I think if I'd have dealt with those things earlier, I might not have had the same problems that I ended up having. Mm. And the last question... What is clear play to you and why is it important? Well, we've talked about this before. I find the kink scene after I got sober. So for me, like the whole fetish scene and the kink scene was kind of, it, it's kind of made me like who I am now. It's, it's helped me to become more confident. And because I've never, played when like, I've, I've played when I was on drugs when I was younger but it was never like the chem sex scene as it is now um, and obviously I've had sex when I've been drunk in the past but I think because of like finding the kink scene when I've been sober the whole time I think I've got a lot more out of it than some people when I talk to the guys that I support that are going through the chemsex scene and they talk about like their feelings and emotions they haven't gotten like some sometimes like they're just going through the motions with people whereas i've got a much better connection because i've i've always done it when i've been sober and like i say that the confidence like when when i put my gear on like leather's my favorite because i've become a different person i'm more confident and it kind of it 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 kind of enhances who I am, if you know what I mean. Oh, I, I, the amount of people I've, I've, I've taught when they kind of see me, if they've seen me in normal clothes and then when they see me in gear, 
they've told me several times that my posture changes, my mannerisms change much more like straight backed and yeah. a bit more, a little bit like um, showing off my feathers in a way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. It, it can definitely work as a, a confidence booster wearing all this gear. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you got into drugs quite young. How, how what, what brought you to like, when was the youngest you started? When we were at school, we used to sniff petrol. Um, and I'm talking like thir around 13. Like we, that was, people talk about gateway drugs being like cannabis and stuff like that. It worked for me. It was like sniffing petrol and then like taking acid and smoking weed. Like it was that kind of progression for me. Like weed came along the line. Like I, I did like I say, sniffing petrol and um, taking acid for a school. And then it was weed later on. And then the, the club scene. And then I really, like, got into, like, using speed, ecstasy, um, a little bit of ketamine and stuff like that. So it kind of progressed. But when I got into it, though, it, it was more like that peer pressure and other people were doing it. And I was never, like, a massive drinker. Like, people did drink, like, you know, when you're growing up and you always get the the person that you know that looks the oldest to go to the shop and get stuff. So we did that, like, drinking a bit of 2020 down the park, if there's people on here that <laughs> know what 2020 is. Um, but it was that kind of stuff. Um, it was never, like, a massive thing the drinking wasn't for me. So when, when you got into the club scene, you got into the party scene, and then you kind of left that, behind and then you mentioned you got into the alcohol abuse and how long did that last and how what did you have to do to get out of it you mentioned home detoxes and so on um yeah. so, a little bit about that yeah um so i was about 20 23 24 when me and chris got together um and i was still like smoking a lot of weed i, I did i get I got quite heavy into smoking weed, so I used to smoke weed like most days. Um, could work and everything, like it, it didn't affect like my day to day stuff. And I wasn't one of these people that had to smoke weed every day, or I'd be a nightmare. Like I, I, I did smoke a lot every day, but I've got friends that if they don't have a joint, then they would be like crawling the walls. Whereas I, I didn't. I could stop it and start it whenever I wanted. Um, so I carried on smoking weed even when I was drinking um, and then gradually stopped doing the raid in the club scene because Chris wasn't into that. So I'd still see like occasional friends and it'd be very much like I'd just use on the occasions when I saw, saw certain friends of mine. Um, but then that became even less and we got to the point where we'd it'd go from like drinking a bottle of wine a night to we'd drink a couple of bottles of wine every night. And then from that, it'd be like, we'd end up drinking even more. Um, but like I say, he never became alcohol dependent. Like we drank the same kind of amounts, but for some reason, like different body types react in different ways. Um, yeah. 
I've got a dependency to it. Um, didn't realise. Um, we went away to Torquay, um, and we we'd not drank all that day. Um, and I was feeling, like, I kept feeling really lightheaded, and I was getting anxious and feeling really sweaty. Didn't have a clue at that point that I was alcohol dependent. Um, and then I just collapsed in the street and had a seizure. Luckily, there was a nurse that was on holiday with a family, so she kind of took over and did whatever she did. I don't know, obviously, because I was on a seizure. And then I woke up in an ambulance. Um, yeah. They were asking me like the questions like, to find out things like who's, who's the prime minister, what year is it, and stuff like that. Then next thing, I woke up again in the hospital later on, and the doctor said to me, like, this is alcohol-induced. Um, and I was I was in complete denial. I was just like, no, no, I'm I'm all right, I'm all right. Got back to Leicester uh, from Torquay, um, and the doctor advised me that you need to keep on drinking because you're dependent. Um, so that kind of stuck with me. Um, but even then, I I didn't really seek help or want to change. Um, but then. I ended up, because of like my dependency, like if I didn't drink enough, I'd have seizures or I was having a lot of falls and stuff. So I ended up being in and out of the hospital. Mm. The alcohol worker that was in there did referrals to the NHS um, for me. Um, but the way that the system ran in Leicester then, it, drug, drug alcohol services were separated and the appointments were quite hard to get to um i ended up not working as well like until that point i i had been a functioning alcoholic but didn't realize kind of what the effect it was on me um i ended up damaging my knee so i had to have um time off and then my drinking escalated even more um and then at that point the, the problems that I was having were getting worse. I'd be throwing up blood and stuff. So my increased frequency being in and out of the hospital. Um, the worker in the hospital, um, he was really good. And he actually advised me to get in contact with Leicester Community Projects Trust because the NHS part of the service that I was being referred into, because I couldn't get to appointments or I'd, I'd go a couple of times and then because it was difficult because it was on the other side of Leicester and I had to walk um, to get over there. So I'd end up missing appointments. So they'd close my case um, and they kept reopening it, but it, it'd be like I'd have to be reopened um, and then miss appointments. So they'd close me again. I got in contact with Leicester Community Projects Trust. Um, they did a referral with me, got me in to see a doctor um, and that's when I did me inpatient detox. But in between that, though, like my mental health went downhill. Um, I had involvement from the crisis team. Um, and they actually did a home detox with me. So my partner at the time, he was put in charge of my medication when I did a home detox. Can you, so, can you explain what a, a home detox would involve? Because some people might not know what that implies. So if you're going to do a home detox, you can't be on your own you, a single person can't do it because you have to have someone there that's in charge of your medication um and 
they check up on you daily to make sure because even when you're an inpatient detox um it's very dangerous like you can have seizures and seizures from alcohol can can kill you your blood pressure can drop you can have heart attacks you can have strokes um so it's really important that you monitor properly and also because the medication that they give you it, it's um benzos so it's um usually librium that they give you um and then they'll gradually that kind of works on the same senses in the brain as the alcohol does so it, it it basically replaces what the alcohol's doing to you so it stops you from going into withdrawal so it'll, it'll gradually reduce you um off your medication um and it's usually about nine days that they do that for um well like i say if you're a single person you you wouldn't be able to do a home detox because you need to have somebody there not just mm -hmm. to be in charge of the medication but also to monitor you so if if you are struggling then they can get um like the emergency services involved i think a lot of people don't realize that if 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 you are an alcoholic or in in other cases also ghb dependent you can't just physically yeah. go cold turkey it, it, a lot of people use the words just stop and then move on it's like no 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 that can kill you you cannot just yeah. stop if you're physically dependent and a lot of people don't know this yeah well that's it and services of they have come leaps and bounds since i came through treatment because now for our service um we launched the families and carers service uh, probably about it's probably about 10 years ago now if not longer it's when i was a peer mentor they first launched it um let's so, let's, let's rewind for anyone listening uh les works for drug and alcohol services just so right. you know <laughs> because everyone's yeah. like what what so this this is his work this is what he does day to day yeah so through getting into recovery um i was supported by peer mentors so they're people in recovery that are trained up to support people that are coming into treatment um so because they supported me i then applied to be a peer mentor and that's what i did um when i first got sober um and then gradually from that i've worked my way up but the service that i've worked for they um actually introduced this family and carers service and it's kind of like i think most services around the country now do family and carers services and it helps to educate like the people that are supporting people what is actually appropriate so you can't just like i've heard horror stories of about people like locking loved ones in rooms and stuff to stop them from drinking and it's like what you were saying it's so dangerous with alcohol and g um so gbl ghb if somebody goes into withdrawal from that they, they can have seizures they can have um heart attacks and and mm. they can kill them. um it's not like if somebody's withdrawing from heroin like if you withdraw from heroin you can be very ill but it's not going to kill you um mm. so that kind of support for families it, is essential and nowadays that is out there for people and you, you have got other services like Al-Anon um, and Families Anonymous but I think Smart Recovery has now launched like a family service as well um, but because I've, I've, ne I've never attended them because I've 
been working in services and I know how our service works. And it's not just about educating them around that. It's about you don't want to, like, family members will quite often feel guilty and want to, they want to, like, do as much as they can for people. And sometimes they'll fall into the trap that they'll start enabling people to use. Um, mm. So, and I know I was guilty of this when I was drinking and I was at my worst and I was, like, in debt because I was just, spending all of my money on booze um and i was borrowing money off my mum um to get booze and i was saying that i needed money for food and money for like rent and stuff and mm. as much as you don't want to be like that when you're in addiction when you are desperate you will turn things like that and the family service can kind of educate people around ways that they can support people better um, and it's also a good network for them as well because I know like a lot of family members that I speak to they feel very alone because it's it's like a guilty secret they don't they don't know anyone else whose son daughter or it could be a friend that is in the same position but when you look at how many people have got addiction problems um, there's no reason why people should be alone and that's why these other services are, are essential um, to help support the, the people that are the friends and relatives of people that are going through addiction. It's, it's interesting when you mentioned families and so on. And it, I, I remember in my early days, uh, my dad was quite okay, but he'd been through like horror stories with my little brother. So he was kind of mentally prepared to deal with having another son with drug issues. <laughs> Uh, where my mom wasn't, um, she'd had boyfriends in the past who were alcoholics. She didn't quite know what, how to tackle with me. Yet again, one of the suggestions was to come home and lock me in a room. Uh, yeah. More than for joking, she would never do that. But it, it was a little bit like, you stay home and then I can keep an eye on you. Um, but it, it, no matter where you go, if you have addiction issues, you're going to find it. It's, it's not yeah. going to stop you. Um, so these type of services to support family members around the person with the addiction problems. It's, it's when people think an addict, they kind of just look at the, the addict person. There's also the people around the person who are getting yeah. affected, friends, family, loved ones. And, and sometimes they get a little bit forgotten in the whole process. Yeah. And that's it. And the, you know, as well as I do, like, what's really important for somebody when they're in recovery is building that recovery capital, having those support networks around them. And if that person's family haven't been supported, they might have become estranged from them. And then they ha that's a really essential part of their recovery capital that's gone straight away. So if services are supporting the families as well and educating them on how to deal with what's going on, then when that person does eventually get into recovery, if they do, because unfortunately, like, sometimes people will just carry on using, um, and it, it, it's a fact of life. Like, there's people that I've worked with over the years that are still like eight, nine years down the line, and they're still going through that madness, but mm. 
if we're supporting them and supporting the people that are there to support them, then there's a chance that they might find recovery in the end. It's, it's, in some cases, it's also just damage control, to be honest. Um, yeah. and it, 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 sometimes it sounds a bit harsh, but sometimes uh, some people just never will get there. And it, yeah. it sometimes they will be examples for others to stop. It sounds yeah. really harsh to say that, but in some cases that is the case. I've sat in recovery rooms where there's clearly people in there that will never get it. And yeah. either they might stop using drugs or they, it just might hop on something else, but the madness stays. A lot of people can become sober, but they don't necessarily find recovery either. It's it's yeah. it's it's such a, a weird one because it's putting putting alcohol and drugs down is one thing, but dealing with your head afterwards, that's a yeah. whole lot of ball game. Um, and a lot of people just kind of stop and just don't deal with the emotional damage from it as yeah. well. And that's not quite. It's it's great if they stop using alcohol and drugs. Absolutely, don't get me wrong. But you also have to deal with the emotional impact of it afterwards. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing that people forget that, and people that haven't been through addiction don't get that sometimes as well. That yeah, when you've stopped using, that's good, but that's why you need to have that support network there so you can help to deal with those emotions that you've been suppressing with drugs and alcohol. Because th there was something that um, Swan used to say to me like. The best thing about stopping using was getting the remo the emotions back, but the worst thing about stopping using was getting the emotions back because it is a double-edged sword. Because yeah, you've got all these emotions that come flooding back to you, but then it's trying to deal with all those emotions that you've suppressed for so long, and you, you you're trying to figure out how to. And it, it's like being a child again because you have to relearn how to manage those emotions. Um, and that's why like, it's important that we have these holistic services around um, to kind of support people in all the aspects of stuff. Um, this, is, this is why recovery, at least 100% in the first year, if not the first three months, is like the most crucial time because that is where things start coming back and that's where you're the biggest risk of relapsing or lapsing yeah. because you just can't handle it because your emotions will not come back in a little order and orderly line they will come back at one in one go so yeah. all of a sudden you can go from being extremely sad to extremely euphoric to being uh, extremely angry for absolutely no fucking reason yeah and that's it people people sometimes aren't prepared for that as well and and like you said, that, that's where relapses can happen because people aren't ready for this sudden influx of all these emotions coming back at once. And it's scary to have to deal with things again and trying to figure how, out like, how to cope with these things. How did you, did, did you, like in early recovery, did you stumble? Did you have t trouble dealing with the emotions or because you dealt with... Um, You've kind of, you've kind of turned your addiction into a, something that can help you, and you help other people. But in the early days, how how did you deal with all your emotions? I think because I I went from 
but detox straight into but I, I was still getting my one-to-one -one sessions with my worker and she was pushing me to like go for the peer mentoring but we also had a lot of extra services um that were available to us so she referred me to group work um so i started doing um i can't remember the name of it at the time but it was like an introduction to um the fellowships and it told you a bit more about mutual aid um and then one of the peer mentors that was there um he ends up taking me to a meeting so I got to go on to fellowships meetings and, and meet people. And it didn't click first of all for me. Like I went to people who think alcohol was my problem. So AA probably would have been the best fit for me, but it wasn't. Mm. I went to AA meetings and I just didn't feel comfortable. And I say it to people that I work with, don't just go to one meeting, go to several meetings and see what fits for you. Um, so I, I did a few AA meetings, didn't feel comfortable in them. I did an NA meet, meeting and I felt like it, it it just fit when I walked in the rooms. Um, but as well as that, like we, have, we used to have alternative therapies as well. So when you've um, stopped using alcohol, they do also offer you, there's a medication that can be prescribed called a Acamprosate. Um, and it's usually for people that have been dependent drinkers that have had to go through detox. Um, and it's not like it, it's supposed to control cravings. Um, it didn't really work for me. They put it on, put me on that when I was in my last few days in detox. Mm. I didn't really want to be on any extra medications. I was always also taking like antidepressants at the time. I was taking medication because of the damage that I'd done to myself with the alcohol. Um, mm. I was taking a handful of pills like, each morning, so I didn't want another medication on top of that. Yeah. So okay. the service I was with at the time, they gave a recurrent acupuncture. Um, so that's the ear acupuncture. Um, so I used to go for that twice a week, and that used to help me to control cravings. Um, so I didn't need the acamposate. And also... It used to help me to manage my um, anxiety as well. Um, and then also doing uh, mindfulness meditation as well. That was another group that we used to do um, within the service. And, and we still do mindfulness now. Um, and I recommend it to anyone that is struggling with anxiety and issues like that because it it is really beneficial. And I used to, years ago, I'd like put down alternative therapies um but since i've got to recovery i've done so many like the auricular acupuncture mindfulness meditation i've done hypnosis as well um mm. and it's all stuff that's helped to like help me to manage my emotions um and mutual aid as well like i don't do the fellowships like religiously anymore um the last time I went for a meeting was probably a couple of years ago. But yeah. I've, got, I've got really strong recovery capital. Um, so I've got friends like you. Um, I've got people that I, if I'm struggling, I'll, I'll tap in and just like chat with people or um, 
because I work within the services, there's, there's people that I work with, professionals that I can speak to if I'm struggling. And mm. it, it's all those things. Well, not just that, like things like going to the gym, making sure that I am getting up and doing stuff and going out. And it, it's things that I go through when I'm working with a client and like try and get structure back in their life for them. So, so when, when did the fetish start? When does, when, when did the kinky stuff start? You, you say you're, you're 12, you're coming, you're coming yeah. up to 12 years now in March, yeah. which is absolutely mind blowing. I'm, I'm a five and a bit years. So that's, I'm, I'm quite far off that yet. But when, when did the kinky stuff start? When, when then you start engage with, with that? So it's prob probably about nine years ago. So I was, I was in, yeah, um, in recovery for about three years. Um, so me and my partner that I was with when I was going through everything, um, we separated. Um, with, and that's the thing as well. Another thing that you have to deal with when you get sober is that you change as a person. Um, and this is something that as much as we loved each other, he couldn't cope with how different I'd become because I was going out and meeting new people and I was, I was busy every single day. Even when I was peer mentoring, I was getting up. It was like I had a full-time job because I was getting up and going into town and going and doing stuff that was all like recovery focused and he couldn't quite cope with that. So it we drifted apart. I've heard this before. People come into recovery and you, you just get all this new knowledge and you, you, you're out doing all these things and sometimes you just grow away from your partner. It's not necessarily because they're doing anything wrong. You just change yeah. your life and they're kind of still not necessarily using or drugging or anything like that, but emotionally you just move on in, in yeah. a way. So it does happen. Yeah. So that's what happened with us and so we separated and at that point I haven't I've got a lot of friends that were lesbians, but I've not got, well, I've got one friend that was gay and he was like, you need to go out, you need to start meeting people. And if you think about like, I don't even think Grindel was around at that point, was it? Nine years ago? Mm, must have been early stages, I would say. Yeah. Um, but saying that, I didn't, I didn't get a smartphone until I was probably in recovery a couple of years before I even went from having like an old burner phone um, to having a proper phone. Um, so this friend of mine said, you need to go out and start meeting people. And he said, I'll take you somewhere um, and you're going to really enjoy it. Um, and I said, well, what do I need to wear? And because I wear a lot of Fred Perry and like braces, I used to um, have my hair clapped bit shorter than this around the side and that so it was like you look all right like that just wear a fred perry with braces skinny jeans and your army boots um and i was like all right then took me off to bolts in birmingham and it was a full-on mm -hmm. fetish night um so went in there and he left me at the bar um, and then he disappeared off um and it was my first ever like experience of the fetish scene so there was guys there in leather there was guys there in rubber sports kit pups you name it there was every kind of fetish going um and a guy could see that i was uncomfortable and came over um 
just got chatting to him. They found out that I was from Leicester. He'd got some friends that were there that were from Leicester as well. So took me out, introduced me to them. Um, and then we've ended up becoming really good friends. Um, and we've stayed friends ever since, but they went to Grand Canaria. So they've not long come back from Grand Canaria um, and they've been out for Fetish Week. Um, so over that year, like, we'd stayed friends. They introduced me to their friendship group that went out to Grand Canaria. And then that following October, I went out for Fetish Week. Um, one of the guys that I'd made friends with through um, these guys that I'd met from Leicester, um, he didn't have anyone to share a room with. So we ended up sharing a room. Um, he was lending me stuff to wear, basically. So I went out there. I bought a pack of three jocks and I bought some football socks and, and I bought a harness. And that was my first like, ever like, experience of like, going out to a fetish week. Um, and like I say, I ended up borrowing loads of stuff off people. And then since then, it's just snowballed from there. But I wouldn't change it because, like I say, like, finding the fetish scene since I've got sober, has, it's kind of, it, it's given me a network of friends that I wouldn't have had. Um, and when I'm in my gear, I'm a, like, it, it's like you said, like, especially my levers and stuff, I am a different person, I'm more confident. Um, and I've, I would advise people to get into the fact you see, definitely. <laughs> It's, 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 it's a lot of people when, when I tell them that out of gear and just in generally, I'm not necessarily the most confident person in the world. And a lot of people always disagree with me. You don't come off not confident and so on, but you don't know what's going on up here most of the time. Um, yeah. So I when, when you're saying that you struggle with your confidence and the way I know you and the way you interact when I've seen you out and so on, I would never have guessed that at all because you're probably since I've known you, uh, we met in Grand, we met in the Grand Canaria first time, didn't we? Yeah. Um, I've always kind of there's a part of me that's kind of looked up to you a little bit because you were engaging in fetish sex the way I would want to engage in it, slightly more just um, just throw yourself into it, where yeah. my brain sometimes stops me doing that a lot of the time but then again our stories are slightly different where you found fetish after addiction i found i had fetish then mixed it with drugs taking and now i'm relearning it still yeah. and kind of having to split it where you kind of is like well this is something i found afterwards so how are you like for example you said you're 12 coming up 12 years sober i do have to acknowledge someone actually mentioned they were 12 years in February. Well done to Marcus uh, in yeah. the chat. Um, how are you found in the last 12 years and with Grinder coming onto the scene and Scruff and the explosion of chemsex? Um, you, you have very secure recovery, but how have you found having to navigate that as someone who works with it in your uh, work life? but also navigating it in your fetish life because you will run into it a lot. Yeah. See, the thing is, I'm, I'm not 
one of those people that's going to preach to people. Like, no. One of, one of, one of the things that, like, because like, I'm the LGBT um, practitioner uh, where I work now as well, and mm. I've set up a clinic that's basically to try and get more people that from, from the LGBTQ plus community into treatment. Um, and the way that I would like the, the literature that we put together for that is like substance, like if you've got like substance use, uh, like not substance misuse, because that misuse bit kind of, it, it's almost like putting people down straight away. Nice people use drugs. People use drugs because they're fun. And it's only when it becomes a problem that people need support around that. And I know people that will just use occasionally, like the way that some people use alcohol. They will just use occasionally. But they need to know that there is support there for them. But I, I make it clear on my profiles um, on Grinder and Scruff that... I don't do chems. Um, although some people, when they're hard, will see chems. They don't see the no chems, they just see chems and they will mess with me. And I won't like, have a go at them or put them down. I'll just politely say, you've obviously not read my profile properly. I don't use. Um, and it's, it's not something that I'm going to like have a go at them. If I was doing something with work and like I was doing outreach on Grinder, and somebody approached and they wanted sport, then yeah, but there's like when I'm doing it for myself, it, it wouldn't be something that I'd be like pushing stuff like that about. Um, mm. But I've, I've never really had a problem when people have like spoke to me about stuff like that. I've just made it clear that I don't use it's like when I go out. Um, cause obviously alcohol is a lot more acceptable um, than drugs and when I go out there'll be people that don't realise that I've had issues and that's why I don't drink but I'm, I'm always open and honest about it because I don't see I think it'd be more of a hindrance if I was like trying to hide it and there are people that I know that they won't talk about the fact that they've had an alcohol problem because they don't want people to judge and yeah there is this big stigma around addiction. Um, I think if people can be open and honest about it, then it helps to break down that stigma. I, I, I have to admit in, my, in, in the past, when I was still drinking, if someone told me they weren't drinking, I would have been quite horrible to them, to be honest. I was just like, oh, you're boring. Why don't you do this? Da -da 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 -da. And now that kind of the shoe is on the other foot and all of a sudden I, I also had a very judgmental view on alcoholics and I very much had the opinion. It's like, you should just stop. So yeah. I, there was definitely a part of me that was very angry when I got an addiction and all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, I get it now. It's not that fucking easy to just go stop. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, I try to be like, like you say, don't, I don't preach to people. I definitely tell them what went wrong for me. And I'm also quite honest about it. If, if I could control it, I probably still would be doing stuff because in generally, if you have a managed use and you occasionally use and it's all managed and safe, 
it, it's fun. It's it, people yeah. wouldn't do this if it wasn't fun. So if I could still do it, I probably would. I've had many yeah. a discussion with my mom about this because she does not agree with me on this. I am also <laughs> a, a firm advocate for what they're doing in Portugal, where they treat addiction as an illness and not as a crime. And it's, yeah. it's, it's legal uh, not to sell it, but to have it. Um, yeah. and you've seen the numbers. It's, it's going the right way, less deaths, uh, because there is these services to help people. Well, that's it. I, over the years, though, because um, the, all the cuts that have been in the drug and alcohol services, like, I was really fortunate. When I came into recovery, there was a lot of money still in treatment services. And then we had some horrible years where it's been cut after cut after cut. Then the Dame Carol Black report um, that was last year, and she made, I think it's something like 37 recommendations. They've upheld 36 of them. So now... There's extra money coming in services to help people around homelessness, domestic violence, um, funding for people like myself to work with people from the LGBT community. Um, we've got workers that, well, we've got a few workers that um, work with minority groups and people from um, the BAME community as well. Um, so things are moving in the right direction again. Um, and it, it's more of a like harm reduction agenda rather than the recovery agenda. Because when they had the recovery agenda and they were like, oh, just get everyone off uh, methadone and everyone needs to just stop. Unfortunately, we know that that doesn't work and that's why the drug and alcohol deaths went through the roof. It's, it's harm reduction. I am a firm believer in harm reduction, especially um, if people are not going to stop, at least give them the tools to not kill themselves. Yeah, because I, I I used to run the needle exchange in the old service, and I still I was delivering training around needle exchange today, and I still have this debate with people when they start to tell me that well you're just giving people the tools to carry on using, and it's not yeah. like that. It's we're helping to support them to stay safe and stay healthy. Like needles cost pence, um, but Treatment for Hep C, HRV, ulcers, abscesses, septicemia, they're a massive cost. Um, when you put somebody on a methadone script, for the few pounds that you spend on that, that's going to stop someone from shoplifting, from burgling, from street robbery. Um, and people don't see this. Um, and that's why... I'm a massive advocate, like self harm reduction, and the, the government, when they try and change the agendas around things and try and kind of get everyone off stuff, it, it doesn't work. And we've lost a lot of people over the years because of these changes. But like I said earlier, it's moving in the right direction. Like we're now seeing services instead of being retended every two or three years getting longer contracts because before it was like a service would just be bedding in and then would have to like retender for the service um and i know because that happened when i was in treatment at one point and i had to change workers so i dropped out of treatment 
So it's yeah. it's a massive impact. And and it's it's also so important. You mentioned that you're now um, the LGBT liaison at uh, this place you work. So you kind of because you're a gay man, you can kind of understand some of the stuff that comes in. And I, my story is, and this is not a criticism of Herringay's councils, drug counseling, but the advisor I had was straight. The therapy therapist guy I got straight did not understand queer kink either. Um, yeah. It, it wasn't, it was better than nothing, absolutely. But there was just this lack of understanding, a little bit lost in translation. Um, and, and so it's for me to know that someone in Leicester has an LGBT liaison in their office is a massive improvement. Yeah. Well, that's it. Hopefully we'll see things like this rolling out all around the country, even in like smaller services um, around the place. But we are very fortunate in Leicester because the services within Leicester have always been really progressive. Um, and it's like we were one of the, I don't know whether we were one of the first or the first that had peer mentors within the service. And I know when I was employed within the service, there's a couple of guys, well, one of the guys trained with me, and one of the other guys was one of the peer mentors that supported me coming in. And we were the first three people with lived experience that were employed within the drug and alcohol services. And now when I look around the office, um, there's so many of us, and I was quite fortunate um, that I got to look after the peer mentor scheme for a couple of years during COVID. And mm. we did a graduation, and out of the 20 peer mentors that we had coming through the graduation, 10 of them had gained employment within drug and alcohol services. Um, so one had gone over to probation, a, a couple had gone into the aftercare service, and then there was loads of other ones that had come in to work in our service. But then when I was on stage doing the presentation, I was looking at and I, there was people that when I was a peer mentor that I did groups with them, workers that I supported as a peer mentor in their groups. And the manager of my service was the woman that employed me as a, a sessional worker right back when I started as well. Um, and she was up on stage with me. She was like giving out the certificates. So it, it's amazing the changes that have happened. It's it's that full circle moment where you all of a sudden engage with people you've worked with or they've worked with you in the past. I've definitely had those full circle moments where all of a sudden I'm the one doing the presentation for people who were helping me uh, in my early days with some of the stuff yeah. I do. I do want to say to Jake, can I ask a question? Jake, put the question in and we'll see if we can answer it for you. I saw he's still on um, the live. Uh, just so we're getting to the end of the session, um, just to get back to the little bit of the kink, what was your first piece of kit you ever bought and what is your favorite? The first thing that I bought was when I was going to Grand Canaria and it was a harness. And yeah. it's in harness is still one of my favorite things just because I've got it. Um, I'm trying to think. See, I quite like my rubber as well that I've got now as well. I've, I've got like a, a full rubber outfit that I've, I've got recently that was like custom. But that's probably one of my favorite things now. 
I'm assuming most of the stuff you have have easy access. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's the only downside about wearing leather sometimes. It's a bit hard to get in and out. Well, unless it's chaps, then it's fine. But yeah, in, in general, yeah. leather is not really made for um all the the picky stuff, if you could say. Um so um it's it's just it's it's really nice to talk to someone where they've kind of taken their addiction, turned it into something positive, and learn that learned experience and now giving back. If anyone's listened to what we've talked about and something's clicked with them or um, they need advice and so on, how can they contact you? Just if people want to contact me, they can contact me uh, through here if, if they want. Um, You've got my details on there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So just send me a message. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, well, it's been really lovely to have you on. I don't know where um, the question uh, Jake had. I think he might not be online anymore, but um, but it's been really lovely to have you on. And it's, it's really inspiring to listen to you, some of the stuff you do now and the heart reduction and the fact that you navigate kink life uh, with such a, a positive, sex positive outlook. Um, so it's, it's, it's really nice to see. Um, and then for me, when it comes to the kink and the way you navigate, I, I see up to you quite a lot because you always come off as really, really confident when you're out, which is really nice to see. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going that's the thing. <laughs> oh, uh, Jake sent you, uh, uh, you asked you a question um, through your DM. So he, he's going to ask you some advice there. And one is asking, are you going to be a dark lens? I'm not going to be a dark lens because I can't afford it. I don't know what, what about you, Les? Are you going to go to dark lens? I don't think I can afford it, to be honest with you. I will be at Fetish Week, uh, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got time to save up for that. You mean Fetish Week, Grand Canaria? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm hoping to go to Fetish Week Grand Canary myself this year. Um, so, um, and then there's of course also Fetish Week London when that finally gets announced. I'm I'm assuming it's happening this year again, but there hasn't been any announcements yet. But to round off, thank you, Les, for coming on and talking with me and sharing a, a little snippet of your story and what you're doing now and what kink is to you. It's been absolutely amazing to have you on. Thank you for having me, and also thank you for being such a support to me as well, because I don't think you realise how much of a support you've been to me over the years. Um, I remember seeing you when I first went to Grand Canaria, and you were still in the madness then, but then seeing how you progressed over the years, it, it's amazing seeing how you've come on leaps and bounds over the years, and, and you've done so much to help to support me as well, so... I try, I try. Yeah. When I'm not pinning you down somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, but thank you for coming on and um, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Take care. Okay, bye. All right. See ya. So that was Les, um, Muscle Carbon here. He'll, his details will be uh, in the description being able to contact him. It's been really nice to talk to him, especially also someone who works in the drug services because um, harm reduction, I cannot keep saying it as much as it is, harm reduction is so fucking important. 
You can have your opinions on it, but it is important and it saved lives. So I'll see you next week for my next guest and have a great weekend and go out and get kinky and sober.